0: My name is Jordan, by the way, if you're a guest or new here. Grateful to be here, local pastor at our NDG congregation. Here I am downtown. Several years ago, I had a couple of old friends over for dinner. And these are friends I had more or less lost touch with. We had grown up in the same church community and had them over to kind of reconnect, see what's up, you know. And as it would, our current sort of faith and beliefs came up in the conversation and What they told me about what they believe now struck me. I never really forgot it. They both more or less said the same thing, and that was this. That while they had appreciated the the good morals that we had grown up with in the church, and more or less held to most of them now, they just didn't see faith or belief in God as necessary. That belief in God and faith was nice, but it wasn't necessary for sustaining a good moral life. That struck me, because that was something I'd wondered about. I'm wondering if it's something you have wondered about. Belief in faith is nice, but not necessary for sustaining a good moral life. Maybe you've seen it like this. You have a friend who calls himself a Christian, and that by all accounts and all standards, their life is a moral train wreck. And at the same time, you have this other friend who doesn't believe in God or agnostic or whatever, and their life seems to be rather put together, right? And so that same conundrum is created in that situation. Are our deeply held beliefs, is our faith necessary for changing how we live or not? Is it inconsequential for changing how we live? Is there a causal link between our deeply held beliefs and our practices, how we live? You know, a recent study I saw in Canada actually helped me make sense of what some of my friends were, were saying here. Um, it was a study of teens who were raised in the church, and then they left it as adults. And the researchers, after lots, thousands of conversations, managed to put a name on the current beliefs that most of these adults now held. Okay? The sociologists called it the universal Gnostic religious ethic. Have you heard of this? U-G-R-E, Universal Gnostic Religious Ethic. Well, here we go, okay? Um, That there is this sort of universal ethic behind all religions if you could just see it. So it's universal, it's an ethic, it's behind all religions. If you can just see it, that there's this sort of hidden knowledge, there's this Gnostic knowledge that... What you need to just see is that religious beliefs are not matters of real consequences. The differences in religious belief and deeply held beliefs are not matters of real consequence, but just preference and taste. And rather, the real purpose of religion is functional. It's the practices, okay? It's functional. It's things like preserving social harmony, and a good person is somebody who does that. But the deeply held beliefs, those don't really matter. Those are almost swappable, you know, as long as the practices are there. You see this in people like Jordan Peterson when asked, do you believe in God? What is the answer? This is pretty common. Yes, I live or I act as if he exists, right? What are you seeing there? It's the functional side. It's the practices of religion that matter. The truth is somewhat irrelevant. It's inconsequential. See that? U-G-R-E, Universal Gnostic Religious Ethic, described my friends and maybe Peterson pretty well. Does it describe us? Is that here too? Think about it this way. When it comes to overcoming, let's say, negative emotions or bad habits, what do you resort to for that change most foundationally? See, a lot of us are gonna go to things like, find things like therapy, right, or try and develop a rule of life or become emotionally healthy or become better in conversations or whatever. But the question is, what is actually motivating that change? Where is your faith in that process? Is it front and center in leading the change or is it just sort of this inconsequential set of background beliefs you're just not really sure what to do with? If so, U G R E, in you, in us. But maybe that's not you. Maybe you've actually seen your faith change you. Praise God. And yet, for most of us, as we see our faith changing us, we rub up against, we bump into things that just seem so resistant to change, and it's hard and it's frustrating. And so if you're in either place today, frustrated by an area of your life, you haven't seen your deeply held faith yet change, or you think it's inconsequential to change, this text is for you. Midway through Ephesians 4 to midway through Ephesians 5. We're in, in this series on Ephesians. We're in the second half of the book, okay? And in the text that was read today, it was full of moral applications. It was like boom, 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 it just kept coming, right? Live like this, not like this, live like this, not like this. And you know, if you skim read, if you skim read, if you skim read this text, it can sound to you just like that, a book for, full of moral applications, a sort of moral code, right? But, but, what I want to, I want to show you is that a more careful reading A deeper reading of this text must dispel that. That the Bible is not merely a moral code book, but a gospel book. A book declaring the good news that in Jesus we can now live good lives. That because of who God is and what he's done, that changes who we are and how we are to live. In other words, your deeply held beliefs and your faith are not inconsequential to how you live your life, but absolutely stinking necessary. Okay, Your deeply held beliefs are meant to change how you live. And it's built right into the logic of this book. We saw this last week in chapter 4 in verse 1, where it moves from the first three chapters are all about declarations of our faith, who God is, what he's done, to chapter 4, 5, and 6, the last three chapters, applications of our faith, who we are and how we are to live. There is a causal link there between the declarations and the applications, and so they are not independent to the gospel, we believe. They're rather sustained and rooted in it. You see that? And so I want you to pay attention to that as we work through our text today. It is so key you do not miss that. So let's get into it. Chapter 4 and verse 17. If you have your Bible, now's a good time. 4 and verse 17. Now this I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do, In the futility of their minds, in the Lord you must, this is Paul speaking here by the spirit, this is not a suggestion or an invitation, this is an in the Lord you must, this is an apostolic command. It means wake up, you know, sit up straight, pay attention, in the Lord you must no longer walk like the Gentiles. What's that like? in the futility of their minds, darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because the ignorance in them due to the hardness of their hearts. My goodness me. (laughs) Those are a lot of big and heavy and weighty sort of terms, right? Paul is here elaborating uh, humanity apart from God. There's a a futility, a darkening and an ignorance and we hear this and we're like, (sighs) Oh, it's offensive. How can this be? Unbelieving, ignorant, darkened minds. My unbelieving neighbors, they're just so nice. How can you mean they're hard-hearted? Well, let me remind you who Paul is writing to. He is writing to us, Okay. He's writing to us. He's not writing to us so that he can reveal how much better we are as Christians. No, he's writing to us so that we know who we formerly were, so that we don't compare ourselves to the non-believer, but we compare ourselves to ourselves before we met Jesus. You need to know what you're up against, in other words. You need to know what was in you and still works, fighting within you. That there is a deep, compulsive unbelief that wants to hang on. You need to fight that. That's why Paul is writing this. And see, when the Bible talks, just to be really clear, when the Bible talks about darkened mind, it is not saying that you cannot be an intellectually brilliant scientist, economist, or psychologist, or whatever. We can plumb the depths of space. We can generate wealth. You can practice your mindfulness all without belief in God. See, the Bible is not saying you can't be smart and do those things. No, what it is saying is that when you do those things, give worth to God, not yourself. Because what we tend to do is give worth to ourselves for the discoveries we've made and the things we think about ourselves. And this is misplaced Worship. Okay, this is misplaced worship. What we need to see then is our culture is a deeply polytheistic culture. The secular culture is that. And you're like, what do you mean by that? Well, we worship. What do I mean by worship? We derive ultimate meaning and satisfaction and worth and hope from all sorts of things and people in our lives other than God. We just don't put His name on it or the name God on it. But that doesn't mean we're not worshiping okay we are a deeply polytheistic culture sociologists like our own Charles Taylor at McGill University James K.A. Smith have well demonstrated this in the literature okay we're just blind to it but that's the point right you can be intellectually brilliant but spiritually blind and dead And so you see then the problem at root is not merely intellectual. It's far deeper and more unconscious than that is a problem with the self. There's a sort of complex to ourselves, what the Bible calls sin in the heart. That has become hard, our self-seeking. And that affects everything, every aspect of who we are, including our minds. And so then if the problem is that, that we're spiritually dead or self-seeking, you will see that it's not going to be changed through better habits or more counseling therapy and mindfulness alone. No, it is a deeper issue. It is a heart issue. It's gonna require a whole reorientation of self-issue to change us, okay? So that's what we're up against. And our self-seeking hearts generate what we see in verse 19 they become callous, have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity, okay, sensuality, greed, and impurity, we're going to see these three things come up several more times in this chapter, it's like a trifecta of bad fruit, if you have it. It's in chapter five, verse three, five, verse five, those three things. Let me run through them quick. Sensuality, okay? That's unhinged sexual desires. Anything outside of marriage. The junk drawer of fantasies, porn, strip clubs, brothels, I don't know, maybe it's an app for you. Sensuality, unhinged sexual desire. Greed, that's not just unhinged sexual desires, but it could be un- unsatiable desires. Okay, you need more and more and more of it to get less and less benefit from it. This could be, well, like this, you know, the same thing that drives the heroin addict drives the person who scrolls endlessly. You need more and more of it, and you get less and less satisfaction from it. Greed, sensuality, impurity, righteous living, another translation, that's moral anarchy. The things that seem weird yesterday are now woke today the fluid moral landscape we live in, impurity, greed, sensuality. Paul urges, he actually commands believers, no longer walk like you once walked. No, turn away, walk like this. Didn't you learn about Jesus, he says? It's so important that you get Jesus or you won't change. You need to get Jesus, verse 20. But this is not the way you learned Christ, assuming that you've heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus, the truth is in Jesus. What a profound statement. We need to grasp this lest we don't change. You remember Jesus at his trial, what Pilate asks him, what is truth? What's the answer? He never waited to hear it. Ignorance, hardened heart, he walked away. And you know the tragedy of it was? Truth was standing right there, embodied in the person of Jesus, meetable, approachable. We learn a few things from this. The truth is in Jesus. It's exclusive. The truth is not in the Buddha or the Kaaba, or your deepest inner sense of true self. The truth is in Jesus. How offensive, how exclusive. The truth is in Jesus. But you know what softens us when we hear that? is that the truth is not a mere historical principle. It is a person. It is relational. It is knowable. It is approachable. Huh? You know what this has meant for me? That Jesus is not a mere principle or historical fact, but an approachable person who is alive and well? See, the Jesus of principle, what this means for me is that the Jesus of principle looks like this, you know? He's the only Son of God, He's eternal, begotten of the Father, by Him all things were made, right? Live, died, rose again, fully God, fully man. That's nice, right? I've read it, I've heard sermons preached about it, I've shared that with other people, but that makes no difference in my life until I know that He's an approachable person. We need to move from the Jesus of principle to the Jesus of the person who is approachable meek and lowly of heart, like Matthew eleven twenty nine says. Dane Ortland translates this as Jesus being the most approachable, the most understanding person who ever lived. That's his heart towards you. And when we see our own hearts, our own hardened hearts and darkened minds, you know what that means? Jesus is not put off by that. He's not He's not put off by your distress and your failure in your need. You know what? Instead, he runs towards it. He finds your lack and your need irresistible. And we don't believe that. He finds it irreversible. No, no. Most of us haven't been raised in families that shown of love like that. It's, it's, It's a trick. It must be a fluke. But no, it's not. That's why we need Scripture to reveal his heart towards us. He is gentle and lowly of heart. That like the father of Luke 15, he runs towards you. He wants to embrace you. He wants to draw you in. He wants to take off your old clothes and put a new robe on you, sandals, and a ring on your finger. He, my friends, is gentle and lowly of heart. The Jesus of history and of principle is also a person who is approachable until you see that, you will not turn off. You will not change into the likeness of Christ. You must see he is approachable. Else you'll hold him away from you. You'll be afraid of him, timid, angry even maybe, until the spirit reveals his heart towards you. Okay? Ask him for that. This is the way we learn Christ. The truth is in Jesus. We meet him. We get to know him in scripture in prayer and community. That's what it's all about. But these are the preconditions to change, right? Seeing ourselves truly, seeing him truly. And so Paul tells us this once he's covered that. Put off, verse 22, the old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and be renewed in the spirit of your minds, and put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness and so there we are to put off everything we've already seen the fluid moral landscape the insatiable and unhinged desires we are to strip that off and put him on and notice we are to put him on we're not to just strip it off right so many of us get stuck in that transition we're like i've taken it off i've put that life behind praise jesus but are you living for him It's not just enough to to stop, you know, lusting or doing bad things or whatever. It's not just enough to let fear and pride keep churning in your heart. You must also put on Christ. It's not just sins of commission. It's time. There's sins of omission. Okay, we are called to walk in him, to dress ourselves up with Christ. Too many of us get stuck in that place, and so we're to strip off and put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness, okay? This is referring to a Christ-like character, a character that thinks like Jesus, acts like Jesus, behaves like Jesus at all times and in all places, okay? We're to wear that. Wow, wow, but how are we to do that? I mean, that's a Big ask. The putting off and putting on. Whoa. The key is in the text. It says to be renewed, 23, in the spirit of your minds. That's the how. We are to be renewed in the spirit of our minds. And that comes about by what we saw last week in verse 15. By speaking the truth in love, we grow up in every way into him, the head that is Christ. That it's speaking the truth in love that renews our minds that grows us up into Christ. And what do we see about the truth? The truth is in Jesus. And so it's speaking the truth that is in Jesus. That is what renews our minds. In other words, it's the gospel that removes, renews our minds. And what's the gospel? Well, I've already alluded to it in that story of the prodigal son. It's a story that Jesus himself told in Luke 15 about the heart of God. Story of a son if you don't know it who says to his father, "Give me the inheritance." father wasn't dead. He was saying to his dad, it's as if you're dead to me. Give it to me now. He takes it. He leaves to a far country. He spends it on himself. He lives for himself. And at some point, a famine strikes, and he loses everything. He has nothing. He's feeding pigs, and pretty soon he's eating the food of the pigs. And at some point, he gets to the complete end of himself. And he says, I'm going back. I just can't do it. And so he starts heading for home. And what do we see in this story? Well, he was a long way off. The father runs. He runs. What do you think he was like? This young man who'd lost everything. What do you think he was wearing? Probably nothing but tattered rags. What do you think he smelt like? Working with pigs, walking maybe a week on foot in the hot sun. And yet, what do we see? The Father runs towards him. He runs towards him, and he embraces him. Huh, what does this mean for us? See, so many of us feel like captive, held captive by our past. We're stuck. I have a hardened heart. I have a darkened mind. I can't approach Jesus. He'd never receive me in. And yet, what do we see? The God of the Bible is gentle and lowly of heart. And rather than holding us off, we come in our tattered and smelly rags, and He throws His arms around us and welcomes us in. If we let Him, He's not holding off. He's not like this. He's like this. Will you receive His embrace? (laughs) He's approachable. God is not saying, clean yourself up. If you let him, he will redress you and give you a new self. And this is how we are changed. Okay, it's grace. That's a Christian word that sums it up. (laughs) It's grace. It is a radical display of costly, unexpected love, as one theologian put it, okay? That we receive In that embrace, here is how Chapter Five and Verse One puts it: Be imitators of God, as beloved children, and walk in love as Christ has loved us and given Himself up for us. We are to be imitators of love of God as beloved children. A radical display of unexpected love. This is what changes us. You see, my children, they don't need to perform for me. They don't need to try and uh, you know impress me. Right? They are safe in an environment of love and protection and acceptance. And it's in that place that they change. It is in that place that they learn to imitate and grow. And they do imitate me. A few months ago, my parents were babysitting our children, and the salt shaker broke. The little screw at the top snapped off. And my daughter burst into tears, three years old at the time, and they're like, it's, what's wrong? It's okay. We'll just put it back together. But they couldn't get it back together. And she's like, yeah, no, you don't understand. Daddy has no tools. And they're like, what? And so they told me when I came home. And I'm like, oh, I know where that came from. I say I have no tools when things break in the house. She was imitating me. <laughs> it is humbling when your children imitate you. But let me tell you about your father in heaven. He's got tools. And in an environment of love and acceptance, you change. Not because you have to perform for him, but because you love him. And so that changes you. You just become more like him because you love him. You become more like Jesus, not because you need to perform, but because that's who you've come to love. And so this radical display of unexpected love changes us. This is how the gospel renews us, guys. It gives us soft hearts. It helps us live righteously and holy in Jesus. And it never ends. This gospel renewing never ends. See, it was grace that changed me the first day I met Jesus, and it's new grace and new mercy every morning available for me that continues to change me into the likeness of Jesus. And it's not, we have to keep pursuing that, okay? It keeps changing us. It's grace that keeps changing us, but we have to keep pursuing it, not because we lose it. Verse 30 says that we are sealed for the day of redemption. That means God will never kick us out of his house. No, we are accepted. We are loved when we receive his embrace. He'll never kick us out of the house. But we need to keep pursuing it because our unbelief is so deep and so compulsive and so much a complex about who we are. That we have to fight, and so we need patience. See, if the problem is really as bad as the Bible says it is, it's not gonna be like this. Aspects of it will be like this, but most of it, for most of us, will be a long, slow walk with Jesus. And so we need patience, and we also need hope, because what so often takes us off the path of change is despair. That Satan wins right out of the gate where we begin to believe it is impossible for God to change this part of me. I've tried. I'm frustrated. It's impossible. Know this. This book was not written for no reason. The change is possible. God's word is true. His promises stand. He who has begun a good work in you will bring it to completion. If there is a voice in your head telling you, it's over, I can't change, I've tried, it's impossible, that is not the voice of our gentle and lowly Savior. And you must say, be silent. I can change, it is possible, in Jesus' name. And so we are to put off and we are to put on. And it's our most deeply held beliefs that help us change and do this. Do you see the connection now? So Paul's going to work off of this connection from here on out. Therefore, he says in verse 25, and then he's going to list out a whole lot of things. Okay? Therefore, this is what the new self is going to look like in practice. Here's what you are to wear. And he gives at least nine different moral applications of which I've been very kind to you and boiled down to nine. <laughs> I don't know if we'll go through all of them. It's time-dependent. But I want you to see that in all of them, Jesus and his gospel are not just the example, but they are also the power for us to change. And Paul only makes that connection explicit in a few of them. We saw that already with chapter 5 and verse 1, that as beloved children, we walk in love as Christ has loved us. See that gospel connection? That's very explicit there. We love because he's first loved us. Here's another one that's explicit, so I'll jump down to it. Chapter 4 and verse 31. Okay, in the new self, we are to wear kindness. We move from retaliation to forgiveness. Okay, verse 31. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you with all malice. Be kind one to another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ has forgiven you. You see the connection? Be kind, tender-hearted, forgiving as God has forgiven you. Last week, I was... Um, talking to a woman. We were doing a paint job together, and we got into conversations about faith. Not a believer, but I asked her what her favorite saying of Jesus was because she said she liked Jesus as a good example in her life. And she said it was um, that we are to forgive our enemies. I said, oh, that's great. Well, who, who have you been forgiven, like following this statement? And she says, well, actually to be honest, I like this statement, I like Jesus as an example, but I haven't been able to forgive any of the people who've wronged me in in my life. And then she asked me, well, how have you been able to forgive? And I went on to explain something similar to what I just explained to you, this radical display of unexpected and costly love shown through, ultimately, Jesus on the cross. And I was explaining the cross, and her response was, oh. There was no words, it was just, oh. And I kind of waited a bit, and she said nothing, and so I said, I take it that you find the cross reprehensible, and she said, that's a good way of putting it. And my heart just went out to her. My goodness, do you see the connection? Only those who have received grace and forgiveness are able to extend grace and forgiveness. Jesus, it's so important, is more than just a mere moral example in your life. That is a crushing and impossible burden. You need to see Jesus as the substitutionary sacrifice, this radical display of unexpected love in your life that empowers you, that enables you to receive and then in turn extend that grace, forgiveness, tenderness, and love. It's so important. We are to move in the new self from retaliation to forgiveness to where kindness. And so the application, of course, for this is when people wrong us and sin against us, Let's be kind one to another, tenderhearted and forgiving of them, um, as God in Christ has forgiven you. That's the first one. Nine, right? <laughs> Next one. I'm going to go back up to verse 25. From, truth to li- um, from lies to truth. Sorry. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are all members one with another, okay? Because Jesus is the truth, we can speak Truth. This doesn't mean we become abrasive, annoying pricks. This means, no, <laughs> that rather than living a lie, we can live honestly, both in word and in deed. That is painful, humbling, but freeing. Okay, you know what links these two? Living a lie versus living honestly is confession. That's why we do this as a daily rhythm in the Christian life. As part of our services, uh, sometimes it's only recent, like recent years, that I began to appreciate the beauty and the joy of confession in my life, guys. For so long, as a Christian, okay, I would confess my sins to God, but I would hide them out with everybody else. Okay, I kept up a, a pretense, I kept up this face, I kept the cool, nice, happy-go-lucky thing going, but it was a fraud. You know what First John one says that if we um, If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That is available to us, but it's not experienced until we do what he... It also says in 1 John 1, which is we walk in the light as he is in the light, one with another, okay? You see, walking in the light means not just confessing to God, it means confessing to each other. That that. That kills sin, but when we walk in darkness, that, causes, that allows it to thrive. And so, what it, one of the changes I've experienced in my life is having a couple of trusted, deep spiritual friends that I can go to and say, Here, this is what, what I'm actually thinking. This is what I'm actually struggling with. Would you pray for me? And then confessing it and receiving, like it's about John 20, verse 23, then being able to say over me, over the things that I've given over to Jesus, Brother, on the basis of your confession know that in Christ you are already forgiven man that is liberating that is life-giving and yet in the moment it feels like death right like how could i ever come clean with this thing it feels like death but that's the point okay because it's the death of pretense so that we can have the life of honesty in Christ we are to wear Honesty. We are to wear kindness. The application, of course, would be change groups for that. Deep spiritual friendships where you can be honest in the same gender with each other. Okay? It's not just about confession, but that's definitely an important part of it. If you don't do that, if you don't walk in the light, you're going to walk in pretense and you will not change. Okay? It's so key. Um, we are also to wear self control. Very next verse be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun. Uh, go down on your anger, self-control. God can change your emotions. See, go- anger is a, a sort of good and natural, right response. We see that with Jesus turning tables or at the death of Lazarus. But it's what what do we then do with the anger? Anger creates a sort of energy, a sort of capacity. But then, how are we going to fuel that capacity to fighting injustice or to letting it just take hold of us and make us angry forever? You know, resentful, frustrated, trying to undermine somebody. We must submit those emotions back under the lordship of Jesus and allow him to regulate them, to allow him to be the one that ultimately takes vengeance for us. Submit your negative emotions to Jesus. Or if you don't, the devil, it says, uh, is given opportunity or a foothold in other translations. The word there is seeding ground. Okay, your negative emotions... I know I'm saying a lot here, okay? Pay attention. Your negative emotions, if left unregulated and unseated to the lordship of Jesus, become ground for the enemy to take up work in your life and to run you amok, okay? Where do you see this? Places like Ananias and Sapphira. What does Peter say to Ananias? He's a guy who tried to put on a front and say he was being more generous than he actually was. In a word of knowledge, Peter says to Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart? A believer. He had ceded ground to Satan in his life. And the results were destructive. We need to be on guard against this. We're going to cover this more in two weeks. We are to wear self-control in our emotions. Surrender them to Jesus. We're also to wear generosity. Verse 28, let no... uh, Nope. Uh, no. Yeah. Verse 28, let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands, so they might have something to share with anyone who is in need. Okay, it's, Christianity changed ancient societies because of things like this, hard work and generosity, okay? And it also can still change us today, Okay, this, this is sort of an application that we like to, to use on our team. But when you come to this city, okay, are you coming to take or coming to give? Okay, Jesus moves you from being a taker, a grabber to a giver. Are you here just to get a degree, get ahead in your career and get the hell out of here? Are you here also to give back and be generous as part of the redeemed people of God? Okay, that is your call. Live generously. You're moved from the old self of being a taker to the new self of being a giver. We are also verse 29. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouth, but only such as good for building up, as fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. We are to wear grace in our speech. I used to work in a remote northern mining camp, and I honestly wonder, like, If people didn't complain, would there have been anything to talk about or any relationships between them? (laughs) Okay, Paul is calling us to something completely different here. The gospel enables us to speak graciously to let our words build each other up. Okay, and it gives three criteria. It is good for building up as fits the occasion that it may may give grace. In other words, it's the right thing said at the right time and in the right way. Way. Three criteria to keep in mind, to be intentional with as you share things that you heard about so-and-so with so-and-so. Okay, a lot of that actually happens. I'm speaking to a real problem in our church community. Okay, weird things, okay, unhelpful things, gossipy things shared as prayer requests and warnings about what not to do. Look, ask yourself the question, do I pray about it, or do I share it, or pray it? Do I share it, or pray it? And the criteria you can use as you pray about this, is it good for building up, does it fit the occasion, and does it give grace, okay? We are to wear grace in our speech. See application for that. Let's drop down to chapter five, verse three. Sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you. And Paul goes on to say, these have no inheritance in the kingdom of God, verse six, let no one deceive you. Let me say on this something very brief. We've done a whole series on this. There is a lot of deception on this topic. Scripture is clear, let no one deceive you. It says, rather, let not a hint of this be named among you. Is there a hint of this in your life? If there is, there's grace for that, but it needs to be brought into the light, you need to confess it, repent from it, repentance is that taking off, and that putting on, that's just another image for it, and God will meet you there, you can change, okay, it's possible, the spirit does it all the time, I see it all, it's, praise God, I get to see that all the time, I get a front row seat on the best and the worst, right, wear grace, we wear holiness, here's another one, we wear (coughs) light, let's drop down to 511. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. You know, I used to partner, and my wife used to work for a Christian organization that when credible evidence was given that the founder was abusive, instead of bringing it into the light, they tried to hide it, thinking this will bring disrepute on the name of Christ. It had brought disrepute on the name of Christ, and hiding it only made it worse, okay? We are to bring things into the light. We are to expose the darkness. That is the call on the Christian life, and it is true within the church as well as without the church. Okay? and It's stuff like this, junk like this, that has brought so much disrepute on the name of Christ and his church. Expose the darkness where you see it. We have a safeguarding policy at the bottom of our website. It's in the footnotes. If you see something, say something. That is your good call as a Christian, as you wear light, okay? And outside the church, it means things like the Arrete Exploitation Hub thing yesterday. Some of you were serving there. Arnold was mentioned, Arnold Viersen, he's he's a kind of friend, acquaintance of mine by Evan earlier. He is served by raising awareness about the types of toxic injustices that are happening in our city. And as Christians who live in this city, who want to not just take, but also serve, we say no not in this city. We want to see righteousness and holiness. Um, And so, yeah, these are ways that we're to wear the light, we're to expose uh, the darkness, and so much of this work is being done by Christians. Once you get into that world, Arnold's a Christian, a lot of the people leaning the charge are Christian, the all parliamentary group to end modern slavery and human trafficking, he's the co-chair of that for Canada. Like, this is a real thing. Christians are fighting this actively. Slavery, human trafficking, we are to wear the light. Okay, so we've seen lots of things. We've seen we were to put off the old self and wear kindness, honesty, self-control, generosity, Grace in our speech, holiness, light, so many things, right? All of these things, it's grace that empowers them. See, what you believe matters. Your deeply held beliefs matter. They are not inconsequential to how you live, but absolutely stinking necessary for changing you more into the likeness and the holiness of Christ. Do you see it now? I'm going to give one final one. They cannot be missed. Verse 17 of chapter five. Do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. Do not be drunk with wine, for that's debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. We are to be filled with the Spirit. This is so important We need the empowering presence of God to bring about the change in our lives. This filling of the Spirit is different than the sealing of the Spirit Paul referenced in 4 and 30. Okay? This is the empowering presence to fight the power of sin that seeks to still have a hold on you. And if you don't know his empowering presence in your life, you will continue to flounder. You need to be filled with the Spirit. Paul's writing to Christians. It is so important What does it mean to be filled with the Spirit? Well, the analogy he gives on the other side is to be filled with substances, right, that take over control of your life, that animate you. Being filled with the Spirit is the opposite, in a sense. It's that instead of substances animating you, and I'm not just talking about alcohol, it's that the Holy Spirit animates you. Instead of losing control, you actually gain control because you begin to step into who you were meant to be in Christ. This is what it's about and be filled with the Spirit, okay? This is Paul's call for us. And so how do we do that? Well, we need to set up our sails. Be willing, okay? Repentance, that's what it is, taking off and putting on, okay? Put up the sails, and the wind of the Spirit wants to blow, okay? He wants to blow in your life. That's actually possible, okay? God's not looking for elite sailors. He's looking for willing sailors, you know what I'm saying? He's not looking just for leaders and people who have it figured out, whatever that means in the church. He's looking for you and you and you and you to be filled with the Holy Spirit of God because that's actually what brings change in our lives. And that brings renewal, okay? And we will not see renewal in this city until we are renewed, huh? It's like Mark Sayers. Revival is renewal gone viral. We need renewal. Our church needs renewal. I need renewal. I do. I'm only, I feel like I'm only cusping in, stepping in, getting raindrops of the refreshing presence of Jesus in my life, and I want more. Do you want more? It's possible. You can have more in Christ. You already have everything in Jesus. How can you have more in Christ? It comes in the spirit, my friends. It comes in the Spirit. Pray, ask, seek, and knock for the good gift of the Holy Spirit. You must pursue it. Are you pursuing it? Are you pursuing being filled with the Holy Spirit? You can. See, so often what gets in the way is we pursue other things. But whatever it is, let me tell you, even good things, it's not as good as the Holy Spirit. His tender, empowering, joy-giving, kind presence Can change you and set you alight so that it changes this church and it changes this city. And that's what we're praying for. And it's possible. You need to believe it's possible and then ask, seek, and knock for it for the good gift of the Holy Spirit. All right? That's where I'm going to (laughs) end. Let's pray. Let's pray for the good gift of the Holy Spirit, that he would come and blow a wind on us that would empower us, that would change us, that we would see renewal in our lives, revival in this city, okay, and change in our time. Holy Spirit, I pray that you would come and you would meet us in this place. I thank you, Jesus, that you are not far from us, that you are brought near in the preaching of your word. And I pray, Spirit of the living God, that you would begin to minister in this place right now, that you would begin to go up and down the halls of this place, and that as you would move over people, you would hover over them, and as, they, as even I was preaching and the things I was saying, that you would be bringing to bear the weight of conviction in their lives jesus the ways that we are not wearing holiness that we are not speaking gracefully that we are not walking in purity and goodness and honesty and generosity before you so many different things you call us into christ likeness whatever it is jesus that we would no longer hold on to it but we would strip it off and give it back to you jesus come holy spirit And so if there's anything here, Lord, that we're holding on to, I just pray that we would release it now. Say, Jesus, I'm sorry. I was wrong to hold on to this instead of you. I give it back to you. Forgive me. Heal me. Heal me in the place that was hurt by me holding on to this. In Jesus' name. And now, Jesus, I pray that you would come. Fill me. Change me. Make me more like your son. In Jesus' name. Amen.